You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. It's too loud. Now, I know what you're thinking, um, Amanda. It's pretty quiet in here. We are mostly just waiting for you to get started, so it's actually nearly silent. Well, I don't mean that it's too loud in this moment or that the speakers are turned up too high. What I mean is that it is an incredibly loud time to be a human being. Um, I don't know about you, but these days I often find myself surrounded by so much noise, both literal and otherwise. Nearly constantly it feels like there is something or some, someone just sort of begging for my attention. For example, I don't know why, but for some reason Sunday mornings are the time of week when everyone who knows me and loves me loves to send me a text. <laughs> It's pretty much the only time of week when I can't respond, Uh, but last Sunday morning I had no fewer than 10 text messages from 9 a.m. to about noon when we wrap up here. To be fair, three of them were from my dad, but 10 is still a lot of text messages. And for the record, for those of you who did text me last Sunday morning, don't hear that I don't love hearing from you because I really do, (laughs) but it may take me a little while to respond after Sunday morning is over. This is a pretty simple example, um, relatively unimportant in the scheme of things, but I imagine many of you know exactly what I mean when I say that sometimes it feels like there is too much demanding my attention, and it really weighs on me. It really weighed on me this week. I wonder if maybe some of you are feeling the weight of that too. Our experience of this loudness of life actually lines up with an increasingly prevalent phenomenon in American life. Sociologists have realized that busy is the new fine. Busy is the new fine. That is, when people are asked by someone else, how are you doing, people no longer say fine, they say busy. A recent paper in the Journal of Consumer Business explores the reality of this newest sort of status symbol in our country, seeming busy, where working less and having more downtime used to be seen as a sign of wealth and success. The tables have turned, and now the the wealthiest and most successful among us are those who are the busiest, and those who want to get there are encouraged to hustle until they can make it to the top. Researchers believe that this emphasis um, on busyness, on hustle culture, on this constant hard work that leads to high achievement is directly related to the economy that you and I participate in every single day of our lives. We live in the land of the American dream, the self-made man, the free market. Uh, We hear things like, give 110% which is actually impossible. You can only give 100. That's all there is. It's everything. We hear things like, do more with less. 
which is bad advice if I've ever heard it. We hear things like lean in, be all in, when all we really want to do is maybe lean out, (laughs) very far out. We hear things like go the extra mile, which for me personally is bad advice because I am a very slow runner. We hear this kind of language nearly constantly, and we begin to praise these sorts of behaviors when we see them in ourselves and in other people. From the time that we are children, we are steeped in this culture that values human beings most for what we can produce and what we can consume. And the effect is that we're prompted into this state of constant work, almost like We can't help it. It's almost like we can't stop. Now, don't let me get ahead of myself here, because when it comes to busyness, I am probably the worst offender. My friend Joe, who I talk to nearly every day, always has to stop me and clarify which of my things I'm talking about, because I have a lot of things. Um, In preparation for this sermon, I started to write down a list of all these things, and at some point I had to stop because my hand started to hurt. (laughs) It's alarming. I'm about to sound a lot like the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians when he lists all of his many things uh, in order to impress everyone, but here we go. Um, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to be real. Uh, I am lucky enough to spend most of my time here with all of you as the pastor, as one of the pastors of this church. That's my main thing. Um, I'm also in what I hope will be the final year of uh, a years-long ordination process um, that involves monthly meetings and readings and uh, all kinds of writing. Um, I'll be preparing over the next seven months for a big interview that sort of culminates this process. Uh, I am also enrolled in a program so that I can become a certified spiritual director. I am a consultant with the Office of New Faith Communities of the United Methodist Church in North Carolina. That's a new one. I had to, like, remember to add that one to the list. Um, I've been uh, co-writing a series of articles for a publication called Ministry Matters recently. Um, I serve on our district's anti-racism team. I have the privilege of co-leading a community group called the Reconciliation Alliance of Wake County and... In the midst of all of that, I'm also trying to be a human person who, like, eats and sleeps and exercises and bathes and all of those good things. So that, that probably sounded a lot like what I call the humble brag. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Has anybody ever done that to you? This factual listing of all of their accomplishments um, that's meant to be, like, humble, but in, in reality is just a, a brag. But the point of all of this um, is like I said, to be completely transparent and to say that I am preaching as much to myself as I am to you this morning. We all want to be successful, um, and I think what happens is that we just become so busy. We are a busy people here in this place called the peak of good living, and our world is too loud. Here's the really hard part of this conversation Busyness by itself often doesn't seem super harmful on the surface. We all want to be successful, to live our best lives, to be the best versions of ourselves, right? That's not bad. It's very good. And we know that the path from here to there, wherever there is, 
uh, involves a lot of work, a lot of things to occupy our time and keep us busy. And naturally, we are busy with mostly good things. Work, being employed, finding ways to financially provide for ourselves and our families is good. That's good. Keep doing that, please. Being connected with one another, carving out time to be together is good. Uh, empowering your kids to do all of the extra, extracurricular activities that make them happy. That's good. Please do that. Traveling is a good thing. Going to church is a good thing. All of these things are good. But whether we realize it or not, whether we are able to accurately see it or not, all of our best laid plans, all of our best intentions are paving a road for us. And I don't think that this road uh, with best intentions is necessarily leading us to hell, but I do think it's leading us to a kind of death, spiritual death. In our story for today that Craig just read for us, Jesus has come from sending out 36 pairs of disciples, so 72 people, to help him do the work of ministry. In the same chapter, before we even get to our story for today, Jesus is already challenging our proud badges of busyness that we wear by reminding us of the importance of delegating, <laughs> the importance of sharing the burden of life with one another. So Jesus sends them out to do ministry in teams, and then he spends a few minutes teaching them about how to be good neighbors, good disciples. And then he winds up at the home of Martha and Mary. Now, if you've ever heard this story preached before, chances are you have heard a nice little message about um, how Martha and her preoccupation with being the perfect hostess for Jesus are bad, and Mary, with her kneeling at the feet of Jesus like a true disciple, is good. Um, and that's kind of how the story usually unfolds. But let's be real for a second. If Jesus Christ invited himself over to my house, which he does quite a lot in the Gospels, by the way. He is always inviting himself over to someone else's house for dinner. He's a bad house guest. <laughs> but if he did that to me, you better believe I would become the best hostess in the world. There would not be a trace of dog hair in my whole house. The fridge would be fully stocked. I would bump that AC down to 72, even though we all know that's a horrible idea in the summer in North Carolina. It's just that there's always this oversimplified dichotomy that's forced on these women in this story, and it's not fair. Maybe that was just Martha's day for the chore wheel. Maybe Mary sprained her ankle earlier in the day and couldn't get around very easily. Maybe Martha just wanted the God of the universe to be comfortable in her living room. It's not so crazy. The really beautiful part of this story that almost never gets acknowledged is that both Mary and Martha are named as disciples here. You see, to sit at someone's feet back in the day meant that they were a follower, that they were a true disciple of that person. And so by sitting at the feet of Jesus, Mary was being acknowledged as a disciple by Jesus and by everyone who was there, which was unheard of for women at that time. That Jesus allowed her to do so and celebrated her listening to him was radical, radical. But this is also true. 
Later on in this same gospel, in Luke chapter 22, discipleship, this life of trying to follow after Jesus, is defined in terms of service, in terms of serving one another. Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles rule over their subjects, and those in authority over them are called friends of the people. But that's not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like the person of lower status, and the leader like a servant. So which one is greater? The one who is seated at the table, or the one who serves at the table? Isn't it the one who is seated at the table? But... I am among you as one who serves. With his own words, Jesus also defines Martha as a disciple, as someone who follows him with her actions. And as he so often does throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus celebrating and honoring the women around him. And in this story, that is Mary and Martha, both of them. So before we go any further, I want you to hear me say very clearly that busy people can be disciples too. Busy people can encounter the goodness of God just as much as a monk who prays five times a day. I promise. I don't think Jesus would ever ask you to give up your entire life of good things unless that was somehow also what you wanted. Instead, what I think Jesus wants is for us to hear him, to actually hear him and not just to listen with our ears, but to know his truth in our hearts. And perhaps like Martha, that people-pleasing, servant-hearted, hustling disciple, that busy disciple, all our best intentions are keeping us from hearing the voice of God as it is speaking to us in every single moment of our lives. Don't you just love that question that Martha asks of Jesus as bold as she is? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. And what I love most about this story is that Jesus doesn't condemn anything that Martha has been doing or even that she has been doing it. What Jesus doesn't say is, uh, you're right, I don't care. Or what he doesn't say is, please be quiet, uh, Martha, I am speaking now. What he doesn't say is, Martha, this is your place. What he doesn't say is, Mary, go help your sister. He doesn't say any of that. What Jesus does say is, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. In this moment, Jesus offers to her the gift of acknowledgement. The gift of truly seeing her. Martha, Martha. He speaks her name with the utmost compassion and understanding. I like to picture Jesus coming to us in much the same way. Coming to you at 3.30 on a Wednesday afternoon. And your Zoom call has just run over. Maybe the kids are getting home from school and they need a snack and then they need a ride and then they need a ride home and then they need help with homework. 
and there's nothing edible in the fridge for dinner, and then tomorrow you have to wake up and do it all again somehow. Oh, and also, don't forget about the latest breaking news blaring in your face all the time. All the time. The latest violent shooting, the latest attack on human rights, the latest worrying report about climate change, the latest update on a failing economy, the latest update on a never-ending war. Lord, don't you care that all of this is happening? You are worried and distracted by many things. You are anxious and overwhelmed. You are hustling You are overworked. You are busy. And I see it, says Jesus. I see you. One thing is necessary, he tells her. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. Instead of words of condemnation, which is often what is interpreted from Jesus here, I think we are hearing him speak words of grace. Jesus is not saying that what Martha is doing is not necessary. It is necessary. They're going to need to eat food at some point. They're going to need to sleep in a house. They're going to need to have clothes to wear. All of these things are indeed necessary, and it is usually the women who do them, just like it was back then. That's how it is today, too. Someone's got to do it. But those things do not define us. They do not identify us, and they do not save us. Jesus is saying that those things are necessary for the body, for health, for life, for order. But one thing is necessary for our souls— And that is to hear Jesus say our name with compassion and understanding. That is to have the chance to sit at the feet of Jesus as a true disciple. That is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing that we say or do or hustle or accomplish can ever change or earn the reality that we are beloved by God. This is grace, not that we have earned belovedness for ourselves with anything that we have ever done, but that it was given to us, this love, before we ever spoke a word or did a chore or got that promotion. It was ours already. To us, in the midst of our very busy lives, I think Jesus would say, I get it. I really do. I've given you so many good things, and you're just trying to make use of them. You're just trying to ask and receive, to seek and to find, to knock, so that the door will be open to you. You're just taking my own advice to you. That's what you're doing. You're trying to survive in this world that stamps a dollar sign on everything, even you. And that's hard. You're doing the best you can, and I see you, Jesus says. You are worried and distracted by many things, but there's one thing that you need to know. None of this can change who you are or how I feel about you. None of this can change the love that I am constantly pouring out to you and to this world. None of this can change the invitation that is always before you. And that invitation is this. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Theologian and scholar Eugene Peterson uh, wrote uh, an interpretation of the Bible called The Message. Maybe you've heard of it. And I quite like the way that he reimagines what Jesus would say here today. He writes, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. These days, more often than not, today even, I find myself in need of recovering my life. I find myself in need of taking a real rest. I find myself wanting to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I want to learn how to move forward without all of these heavy and ill-fitting burdens. I want to learn to live freely and lightly, and I'd be willing to bet that you do too. You want all of that too. The good news for us this morning is that we, thankfully, do not have to figure out how to do that on our own. Generations and generations of Christians have gone before us and they've tried to work all of this out. And they've left us so much helpful, holy advice on how to get it right or at least how to try to get a little bit closer. I've been reading recently the work of St. Teresa of Avila, also known as St. Teresa of Jesus. I hope someday someone refers to me as like Amanda Rigby of Jesus. That's pretty cool. She's a doctor of the church who offers an incredibly beautiful analogy in her work entitled The Interior Castle. And in it, she describes her understanding of the soul as a big castle with seven mansions or chambers, um, is kind of what she means, that make it up. Each of these chambers is this place within us that we can enter into in prayer. Places inside us where in those moments when we engage our spirit, we are able to connect to the divine. She writes uh, so profoundly in this book about the pitfalls of busyness in our soul. The devil, she says, frequently fills our thoughts with great schemes So that instead of putting our hands to what work we can do to serve our Lord, we may rest satisfied with wishing to perform impossibilities. When I take a look at my life and the busyness that I've created for myself, sometimes it feels impossible. I know you know what I mean. And on our worst days or maybe just our busiest days, I have to wonder if maybe Teresa is right. Perhaps it is simply that we wish to perform that which is impossible instead of that which God asks for us. 
that which God wants for us so desperately to have. But this desire for impossibility does not have to be the end of the story, Teresa says. In fact, she believes busyness is just one of the beginning stages of our spiritual journey. If we are able to find a way to move past that into the next chamber of our souls, we will begin to find a greater intimacy with God. And the same is true for the third chamber and the fourth, all the way into the seventh one right there in the center. Each chamber, she says, has its own pitfalls to overcome. And if we can figure them out, if we can persevere in holy prayer and holy community, holy discipline, if we can do that in spite of our busyness or together with our busyness, in the midst of our busyness, we will one day figure out how to get at the core of who we are. The reason I love St. Teresa so much is because she believes the core of who we are is God. She believes that in the midst of us, right there in that middle chamber, when we finally get to it, when we finally dig away all of that other stuff that's in there, we will be met with the presence of the divine residing in us, endlessly generating light and life and love that can overflow into our lives and into the world if we let it. One of the modern translators of Teresa's work, uh, which was written in the 15th century in Spanish, so we do need some translation there. Um, she is a woman by the name of Mirabai Star, and in her introduction to her translation of the interior castle, she names the innermost chamber of the soul in this way. She says, there is a secret place, a radiant sanctuary, as real as your own kitchen, more real than that, constructed of the purest elements, overflowing with 10,000 beautiful things, worlds within worlds, forests, rivers, velvet coverlets thrown over feather beds, fountains bubbling beneath a canopy of stars, bountiful forests, universal libraries, a wine cellar offering an intoxication so sweet you will never be sober again, and a clarity so complete you will never again forget. This magnificent refuge is inside you. Enter. Shatter the darkness that shrouds the doorway and believe the incredible truth that the beloved has chosen for his dwelling place, the core of your own being, because that is the single most beautiful place in all of creation. Friends, beneath all of our busyness, hidden under all of our commitments and our responsibilities, our identities and our anxieties, is the very presence of the living God. The invitation before us today is not to somehow set aside ourselves and seek God in the heavens, distant, far away. The invitation is to go deep within ourselves and find God there. 
where God has always been. As it turns out to our busy, loud lives, Jesus says, you are worried and distracted by many things. Only one thing is necessary. And you have had it within you all along. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.